0: Well, good morning. we would like to welcome all of you who have come to worship with us here today. Welcome to those of you in the worship center. It's good to see some of you who haven't seen you in like four months, and so it's good to see you again. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online as well. This is one of your first times with us. We would love it if you would fill out the connection card. You'll find that online at the website, and that will allow you to give us some contact information. We'd like to give you some information about the church. As well, if you want to follow along with the sermon outline, you can find that on the website as well. About 30 years ago, there was a movie. Uh, called Beaches, and one of the main characters was played by Bette Medler. And she was this rather self absorbed character. And uh, at one point, she realizes that she's been talking endlessly about herself. And so she stops and she says, Well, but enough about me. Let's talk about you. So, what do you think about me? Right? And I laugh at that because that's me sometimes. I found, especially the past four months or so, I've found myself increasingly self absorbed. Uh, part of the reason is I'm extreme on the extrovert side of things, and I don't have the, the variety of activities and relational interaction. I find I just think about myself an awful lot. And there's nothing, se- nothing wrong with thinking about yourself, but many times we become self absorbed and we get fixated on what I want what I think and what I feel and sometimes we just get fixated on things that that we wish were better wish were different I talked to a couple people this week who experienced some some bad news this week they experienced some loss some disappointment and so it's legitimate to think about ourselves but it's wrong to be self-absorbed right Well, there's actually another option, and that's what we're going to talk about beginning today and the next five weeks. Uh, It's possible to think about something that will never change. It should never change. It can't get better because it is already perfect. And what I'm thinking about is the glory of God. And the glory of God is a pervasive theme throughout Scripture. It's found 360 times in the Bible, from Genesis to the maps, as they say. I mean, you find it everywhere in Scripture. It talks about the glory of God. And by the time we get to the writings of Paul, this is after the death and resurrection of Christ. By the time we get to the writings of Paul, Paul is urging believers to do everything to do everything to the glory of God. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul writes this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, when I read that, several questions pop into my mind. Uh, first of all, I think, I think okay, what does that even mean? How would you eat breakfast to the glory of God, right? What does glory even mean? Is that just a religious word or does it, does it have content? And, and uh, what type of a person would be so passionate about the glory of God that they would do even the mundane things of life like eating and drinking to the glory of God? Well, those are some of the questions we're going to explore beginning today and for the next five weeks. And uh, as an introduction to the topic of the glory of God, we're going to consider Matthew 5, 14 through 16, which is the, the, the scripture that Riggins read earlier, that amazing reading of scripture. And in this passage, Jesus challenges us as followers of Christ, get this, to live our lives in such a way that we actually influence other people. To acknowledge God's glory. So we need to be clear about this. Jesus isn't merely saying, he is saying this, but he's not merely saying you should glorify God by the way you live. He's, he's actually saying by the way you live, you should convince and, and propel other people to live to the glory of God. It's really a striking thing. Notice how he begins with a statement in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. And it's plural, you, plural. And so he's talking about collectively as his people, you are the light of the world. And throughout scripture, light is an image that's used for truth, the truth of God, the purity of God, and the presence of God among other things. And so what Jesus is saying, you as my people, you should radiate the purity and the truth and the presence of God to everyone who cares to notice. That's your identity. You are the light of the world. And it's striking that he, he says to his followers, you are the light of the world, because elsewhere, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. For example, in, in John eight twelve, Jesus says this, and again, he makes a connection between him being the light of the world and his followers being the light of the world. John eight twelve again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Then he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you read the Gospel of John, it talks about light and darkness in a very masterful way. And it makes very clear that some people prefer darkness. Some people prefer to walk in the darkness, which means to walk in sin and walk in evil. And they prefer not to walk in the, the path that Jesus laid out. But his followers are those who actually come out of the darkness. They're tired of skulking around in the shadows. Come Out of the darkness into the light of his presence. That's what they want. That's what they understand is, is the best, what's healing and what's nourishing for them. And so Jesus says that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. And the reason they have the light of life is because they have him. And so if you put your faith in Christ, you are given his Holy Spirit. He dwells within us through his very spirit. And so if the light of the world dwells in you, you are also the light of the world. Now you can shine the light of Christ. And so this is our our calling. This is our identity in Christ. In the second line of verse 14, Jesus says this, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And so if you've got lamps burning in every window, that city's on a hill, it will be seen for miles and miles around. I mean, you just can't hide that. That's obvious. He makes another obvious point in verse 15. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And we're all shaking our heads in agreement. I can't see your faces. So you would shake your head in agreement, right? Nobody lights a lamp and then covers it up. No, you put it on an end table or you put it on the the lamp stand because that's what a lamp does. It gives light to people in the house, right? And so now that we're all in agreement in this room and wherever you are, let's read verse 16. This is the so what. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine Before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so, Jesus tells us three things in this verse that that we have to understand if we're going to have the type of influence that He wants us to have, and if we're actually going to live lives that compel other people to give glory to God. And so, three things. First of all, He says, Live out your identity. He says to us as His followers, Just as a city set on a hill can't be hidden, everybody knows that, just like nobody would light a lamp and cover it up. He says, since you are the light of the world, let your light shine before others. And so this is our identity. He's saying live out your identity because you're the light of the world. You are uniquely created to radiate his purity, his truth, his presence to other people. And so, please understand, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is not talking about some amped-up version of yourself. Okay, He's not saying that that you should uh, just just kind of somehow power up and just just come to the rise to the occasion and be the light of the world. And He's certainly not saying that you should pretend you're the light of the world, even though deep down you know you got nothing for other people to see, but pretend like you're the light of the world. That's the game plan. Here. No, he's not saying that. No, he's actually saying the opposite of that. He's saying because he's saying that you are the light of the world. And so you put it together. Jesus says to his followers, because I'm the light of the world and because I live in you, you are the light of the world. Therefore, let your light shine before other people. Live an appropriately transparent life. Live out your identity before other people. Second thing he says there, he says, live out your identity through your good works. Uh, you may have noticed he doesn't command us, go do a bunch of good works. Just get busy and do good works. Uh, for Jesus, it's a given that if you're his disciples, uh, you will do good works. That, that's what disciples do. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus and not... Do good works. You can admire Jesus and not do good works. You can go to church and not do good works. People prove that all the time. Uh, You can uh, read the Bible and not do good works, but by definition, you cannot follow Him and not do good works. Why? Because the definition of a disciple is someone who is apprenticed to Jesus, who's learning to obey everything that he commanded. And so his disciples are those who imitate him, who walk through this life showing other people what he is like. Paul spoke about good works in a similar way. It's really fascinating. It's a pretty familiar passage to, to many people. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he says, for by grace you are saved. And so it's a gift. It's nothing you earn. It's nothing you deserve. It's strictly a gift. He says, you, it's by grace you have saved, are saved through faith, through putting your confidence, your absolute confidence in his death and resurrection. He says, it is not as a result of works. In other words, you didn't earn it. Uh, nobody can boast about their salvation. And so after saying it's nothing that you've earned, nothing you've deserved, it's a gift. Paul says this, about good works and like Jesus he emphasizes our identity as a new creation when he talks about good works he says in verse 10 this is Ephesians 2:10 he says for we are his workmanship we're created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them it's really interesting if, if you look at this this statement in the Greek, the first word in the sentence is his, as in God's, as if Paul is saying his workmanship, God's workmanship, that's what you are. You are God's creation. You are created in Christ Jesus for good works, works that God prepared beforehand. And so the emphasis is upon God's work in us. And so again, we're God's work, we're God's design. And when it comes to good works, Our part is to walk in them. They're an expression of our identity. They reflect the fact that we're his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, there will be seasons of discouragement. There there might be seasons of disobedience where good works are lacking. But if you are saved by grace through faith, it is your identity. It is your calling to do good works. The third thing we learn in this verse, Jesus tells us, live out your identity, number one, uh, through your good works, second, and then third, for God's glory. And we finally get to this word glory. And so Jesus tells us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven And so if you glorify God, you're you're obviously not making him glorious. You are acknowledging him to be glorious. You're acknowledging how glorious he really is. And the term glory is notoriously difficult to define. And so we'll start talking about it today. I'll make some comments about glory. But each week as we teach about glory, we'll, we'll add an aspect. And hopefully by the end of this the sermon series will have this pretty well-rounded understanding of the glory of God. But one aspect of glory in the Old Testament, the, the, the root word means uh, weighty. And so because God is glorious, it means that he's, he's a heavyweight. God is not a lightweight in any sense. And so God has this substantive to him in his character. The glory of God is also associated with his radiance or his splendor or his brilliance. Uh, many times the glory of God was manifested as a, a blinding light or this, this this radiant presence that nobody could could even experience. There's this famous passage in, in Exodus 33 where Moses very boldly says, God, show me your glory. <laughs> God's like, well, nobody can see me and live, so I'm going to have to tuck you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to have to put you in the rock, and then I'm going to go by, and then you can kind of see me as I'm leaving. And so the glory of God is this, 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 this uh, white-hot radiance of God. And Matthew 17 describes the transfiguration of Jesus when, when God pulled back the veil and people got a brief glimpse of his glory, which is really God's glory. But there we're told that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Okay, so this radiance. In numerous places the old in the Old Testament, God's glory is associated with his holiness, which is another term that's notoriously difficult to define. You can kind of describe it. If there's a passage in Isaiah 6 where these angels these seraphim they were these burning angels they declared holy 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 is the lord of hosts and when you pronounce something three time you're saying this is superlative and so god is is holy like no other being in the universe he's in a category all its own when it comes to his moral perfection and his his beauty Uh, nobody can compare to him And they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's glory is the manifestation of his holiness. God's glory is the display of his perfection and of his moral beauty and excellence. So back back to Matthew 5. The idea is that our good works will be so compelling and our lives will be so compelling that they will convince others to acknowledge how glorious God is. Our lives have such a character, such a tenor that people will will see our good works and conclude that God is incomparable when it comes to his moral perfection and his beauty. More specifically, Jesus says they will acknowledge that they will glorify our Father in heaven. And so there's this family resemblance, right? I see some families sitting here, and I got to tell you, you, you just see the family resemblance in the kids. You just You just do. And that's what we're supposed to show other people, what our Father in heaven is really like. It's interesting. People often notice the contrast between what we find here in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, let your light shine. Let other people see your good works. The contrast between that and Matthew 6, where Jesus says, don't blow a trumpet before you when you give to the poor. No, do it in secret. Do things for God's eyes alone. And so what's the difference? Well, in Matthew 6, people are doing it for their own glory. They want people to be impressed with them. Whereas in Matthew 5, they're saying, no, shine your light so that people will see God's glory. So people will be impressed with God in all of his magnificence. And so if you put it all together, Jesus is telling us, live out your identity through your good works for God's glory. And so Jesus is is raising an astounding possibility for our lives. He's raising the possibility that our lives will be so radiant, even so glorious, that people will experience us and their impulse will be to give glory to God. They want to be loyal to God because of who they see in our lives. And it would be the height of arrogance if we made this claim, if he hadn't made this connection between our lives and God's glory. But that's the vision that Jesus is putting forth in these verses. It's astounding, isn't it? It's astounding. And so I think you'll agree with me. If we're going to be the type of people whose lives naturally convince others to glorify God, we have to be passionate about the glory of God. It can't be an afterthought afterthought every every now and then. It has to be front and center in our thinking and in our lives. Uh, We need to be convinced on a heart level that God is infinitely perfect and beautiful in every aspect of his being, so convinced that we are enamored with him and his ways. And so we can't really be embarrassed about God. God right? And be passionate about his glory. We can't like secretly think, oh, I don't really like this about God. I don't really want to, want to publicize this about God. Now we have to be convinced on a heart level. We are so enamored with him that we gaze at him. We can't take our eyes off of him. We can't stop thinking about him. We can't stop talking about him. We can't stop just, just shining his light wherever we are. And so if we're passionate about the glory of God, we will have to take our eyes off of ourselves, what I want, what I think, and what I feel. And we have to become fascinated with him, what he thinks, what he wants, what he feels. And so what I'm telling you, ultimately what I'm telling myself, is that the antidote to being self-absorbed and self-absorption makes us miserable. You show me a self-absorbed person, I will show you a miserable person. The antidote is to become passionate about the glory of God. And so that's what we're going to talk about the next, the next several weeks. Next, week we're going to talk about the glory of God in creation, that, that connection is made. And we're going to talk about the, the impact that the glory of God in creation should have in the way we think and the way we live our lives. I think you'll find it to be rich and nourishing. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for revealing your glory to us, for showing us your glory ultimately in Jesus Christ. and. God, we we thank you that we have somewhere to look besides ourselves and besides our issues and our problems. Legitimate as they are, we we need to fix our eyes on you and we need to see your glory, and we need to let that influence how we see ourselves and ultimately how we live our lives. And God, this vision that our lives might even be glorious and compelling to other people. God, that that inflames our imaginations and that and that that gives us a a vision for our lives that we wouldn't, we wouldn't take for ourselves. But God, we want to receive that and we want to, to understand that and we want to live that out. And so lead us as we, we think about the glory of God and explore what the scriptures say. We pray that we would seek and find your glory uh, during this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.